Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. From the first letter of Paul to the, to the Thessalonians, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Why can't you just be happy? I wonder if you've ever heard those words before. Why can't you just be happy? These are truly awful words to hear. They're usually spoken out of exasperation in response to enduring and seemingly permanent states of loss, of sorrow, anxiety, depression, frustration, or despair. And these words hurt. They usually reveal an insensitivity to the depth of pain or an impatience with the long and difficult work of healing or an ignorance of the realities of suffering and illness and trauma that so many of us and our neighbors face. And even if we can, to some extent, understand why someone might speak words like these out of exhaustion, caring for, and being in the presence of enduring pain, we still find them unbearable to hear. Maybe you've heard them yourself from the mouth of a friend or spouse or parent. Maybe you've said these words to someone out of frustration or exhaustion or despair. Maybe you've even said them to yourself why can't you just be happy? The truth is, as we all know, you can't just make yourself happy, at least not in any meaningful and sustained way. So then where does someone like St. Paul get off saying something like, rejoice always? What kind of cruel admonition is this to rejoice, to be joyful, always, at all times. Either Paul just simply doesn't get how pervasive pain and loss and sorrow are in our lives, or worse, he thinks that the Christian life is about learning how to transcend all of them in a kind of cheap, plaster-on-a-smile Christian cheerfulness. That is, unless for St. Paul there is some kind of difference between being happy and practicing joy? I think that there is, and I think it's a significant one, one worth thinking about this morning a little bit. Significant because if joy is in fact distinct from simple happiness, if it is a work that can be done even in the midst of unhappiness, of sorrow, even despair, well, then Christians really are on to something when we talk about hope. Joy, I want to propose this morning, is less a description of our subjectivity or a response to our present state or predicament than it is an act, we might even say a work, of hope in God's good future for creation and for us, which is why joy is so often paired with a verb, 
rejoice. As far as I know, happy has no verbal form, but we can do joy. We can practice joy. And even in the midst of darkness, even when there's little promise of comfort or relief at hand, even when we can't be happy, we can rejoice. Rejoice always. Today on this third Sunday of Advent, you might know, we celebrate Gaudete Sunday. The name comes from the Latin word rejoice, which is the first word sung in the Latin Mass for this Sunday. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The introit begins, echoing our reading from St. Paul to the Thessalonians. And the third Sunday of Advent is devoted to this theme of of joy, which is why Pope Francis recently called this Sunday simply Joy Sunday. We light the rose candle in the Advent wreath. We sing of joy and expectation. We hear in the scriptures of the joy of God's salvation. Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create, says the Lord to Isaiah. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. And then the Lord says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. In the midst of waiting, as the birth of our Lord draws near, Gaudete Sunday is the surge of joy injected into the middle of Advent. It's almost the liturgical equivalent of the experience of Elizabeth, at Mary's visitation, when the Blessed Mother, carrying the incarnate Lord in her, draws near, Elizabeth's child leaps in her womb in joy. Elizabeth feels in her own body the joy of God's coming salvation. And joy is often a similar kind of involuntary response to the beauty of God's passionate love. As Henry Nouwen puts it, joy is the experience of knowing you are unconditionally loved and that nothing, sickness, failure, emotional distress, oppression, war, or even death, can take that love away. But joy is also, and maybe even most of the time, a form of work. And sometimes it's hard work. It is an activity ordered to God, our unshakable hope and salvation. St. Thomas Aquinas tells us that rejoicing is a work that can always be done because whatever evil might occur, it is incomparable to the infinite goodness which is God. Whatever evil might occur, Thomas says, it is incomparable to the infinite goodness which is God. So how do we rejoice? How do we, on this Gaudete Sunday, in the middle of a global pandemic, confronted by many uncertainties, anxious about so many other contingencies, disappointed by loss, burdened by any number of pains, how do we rejoice today? Sacred Scripture instructs us this morning both of the object of our joy and the substance of our work of rejoicing. 
And we hear the former, the object of our joy, in our reading from the prophet Isaiah. The prophet pens God's own words to Israel in the midst of her exile, in her disorientation and pain and hopelessness, the Lord speaks of coming redemption. For behold, the Lord says, I create new heavens and a new earth. The hope promised for Israel is not just a return from exile, not just a liberation from bondage, not just a renewal of God's own people. What God promises for Israel is a reconstruction, a refashioning, a renewal and redemption of the entire creation. God has delivered God's people in the past, to be sure, rescue from a devastating flood, liberation from slavery, salvation from enemies, but now God promises something, well, to use the language from Isaiah, new. See, part of what makes for a true object of joy, of hope, is exactly this, the promise of something new. What God's people then and now hope for, what they rejoice in, is not a gradual reform and repair of their life and situation, nor is it a nostalgic return to some prior golden age, even of paradise. What they long for is a rupture with the world as they know it, for God to break in and transform it, to make it new. The object of joy is God's new creation, and the Lord directs Israel's vision to the salvation that is to come. God sets for Israel an object of their joy. And note, it's not some vague promise that conditions will improve. It's not a vivid, it's, it rather is a vivid description of vision of new creation. And in this new creation, he says, there will be no more crying or weeping. For the sources of pain and suffering will be done away with, supplanted by God's very presence. There will be no premature death, for the Lord will be everlasting life. No alienation or oppression for those who build and plant will no longer build and plant for another, but enjoy the work of their hands. There will be no predation or violence, for wolves and lions and lambs will graze together, and most importantly, God will be, to use the phrase from St. Paul, all in all. God's people will experience a presence to God that is immediate, perfect, and full communion. Before they call, says the Lord, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. In the new creation, Israel's joy and ours will be full, for we will see the Lord face to face. So joy is a work of hope, directed to an object. And the object of that hope is God's complete redemption, that the world, God's creation, will be restored, renewed, turned right side up, and put to rights. And this is inevitable. 
God will do this. It is certain. And because redemption is so certain, we can rejoice in that even now. Rejoice in what is to come. Rejoice always. So then this is the first part of joy, the work of joy. It's to make an act of hope in God's coming redemption. To make an act of hope in God's coming redemption. That language of making an act of hope might be unfamiliar to you. It's not something we talk a lot about, but it's an important idea in the history of Christian practice. Because hope is not just a theological virtue, a gift of God's grace, which takes root in our souls. Hope, St. Thomas Aquinas and many others have said, is also an act, an activity. It's something we do. Hope is something we can declare or intend, make a resolute decision about, even today. Usually it's in the form of a simple prayer. Perhaps the most traditional act of hope goes like this. Oh my God, relying on your infinite goodness and promises, I hope to obtain pardon of my sins, the help of your grace, and life everlasting through the merits of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. One way to practice joy, to rejoice, is to make an act of hope. And for some of us this morning, it might be the only act we can do, is to make that prayer, to make an act of hope, to say to God, I'm staking my life on the hope of your coming redemption. Come whatever may, I am standing firm in the hope of your salvation. But joy is not just a resolution of hope in God's future. Joy is also a work we do even now. Rejoice always, Paul says. But then listen to all the exhortations he makes alongside this invitation to rejoice. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Do good to one another and to everyone. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks. Do not quench the spirit. Abstain from evil. Hold fast to what is good. You see, joy is a work. It's a work done in preparation for God's future to come, but it is also a work in which God's future comes even now. This, in fact, is the whole theme of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, who were a people living in expectation of the Lord's soon return. What should we do as we wait, they ask Paul, and he instructs them, and so every Christian that the proper mode of waiting are these actions of anticipation of God's coming redemption. And so this is the second part of the work of joy. Joy is a work of anticipation. It's an, anti it's an activity of welcoming God's future redemption even now, of making room in this creation for the new creation, and St. Paul gives us all these ways that we can do this work 
of anticipating God's coming redemption. I'm sure we could list countless others, but the important thing we have to see is that the work of joy is about our participation in God's making everything new. Joy is work we have to do. One of the church's greatest witnesses, I think, to the world is this. Broken, suffering people who are filled with joy because of the work God has given them to do. I wonder if you know the kind of people I'm talking about. They are often people who have experienced great trauma and loss and pain and suffering, usually trauma and loss and pain and suffering that never really leaves them, but who nevertheless radiate the joy of the gospel in their works of charity and hospitality, in their art and writing, in their works of justice and mercy. I think of people like Elizabeth Elliot, Richard Allen and Sojourner Truth, Gerard Manley Hopkins and Flannery O'Connor, Oscar Romero and Martin Luther King, my friend Peter and his parents, Janet and Charles. These saints are icons of joy because what we see in their lives is not an erasure of suffering, but suffering which is transformed, we might even say transfigured, as it is ordered to God and God's future in hope. We see bodies broken, but filled with joy. With joy, We see a kind of Eucharist in their bodies as they await their redemption. Today I want to invite us to follow the saints of joy, and today to rejoice always, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.